We are, of course, engaged in our study of King David. And uh, so I want to get to that in a moment. I'm trying to think of a few things that we need to mention. Um, with regard to Wednesday night devotionals and uh, speaking opportunities and maybe a desire to better your abilities in that area, we're still leaving the sign-up sheet out in the hallway for any men or boys who want to get a little help in that or just to sign up to do the devotionals. Uh, you don't necessarily have to come. We're going to have a few classes, but you don't have to come to the classes if you want to be a part of the Wednesday Night Devotionals. Uh, sign up and I'll get with you and we'll talk about what your desire is and what your needs are. But we're going to close that door here pretty soon so we can start getting the rotation going for Wednesday nights. So a lot of you have expressed a, a desire to help in that way. Uh, you want to make that part of your transformation that we're all fo focusing on, you know, on, excuse me, focusing on in 2024. And so I think that would be really good. And so uh, we'll give it about another week and then uh, we'll start working on developing our speaking abilities in that area. Uh, so great to, to see you all tonight. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've got a lot of territory to cover. I'm hoping to get through chapter 18. We'll have to skip some material in order to do that, but I think we can hit the high points. Let me talk about where we left off last week. Well, first of all, the title to tonight's lesson, my clicker's not working. Something's not working. My title is The Scars That Are Left. The Scars That Are Left. Last week we talked about David's sin with Bathsheba and his repentance after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And we spoke a little bit about the nature of sin and its devastating effects. It has spiritual consequences and it has physical consequences. And God is willing to forgive and take away all those spiritual consequences. His grace and His mercy are amazing. But the physical consequences are not always erased. Sometimes they can be improved. And so we bring in the analogy of a scar. A scar is flesh that has healed, but it bears the mark of the trauma in the past. And that's a good way to look at the physical consequences of sin. You heal, but you bear the marks. David heals, but he bears the marks. And sadly, his family bears the marks as well. We ended the, the last class with Nathan's words in this heartbreaking prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own 
house. So that can't be good, right? A sword is a weapon of warfare, and the, the problems are going to come up from within the house. And we'll see the rest of this story will show Nathan's words coming true, or God's words through Nathan coming true. And it all starts with the child that was conceived in the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. We didn't have time to talk about this last week, but if you are looking at 2 Samuel 12, let's read verses 14 and following together. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. These are the words of Nathan. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? They worried that he would do harm to himself. And so this is a very sad episode in David's life. It's the beginning of the heartbreak. This innocent child, who didn't do anything to deserve this, suffers for David's selfish choices. And, and this happens in our world as well. Innocent children, innocent people suffer because of selfish decisions that we make. And it's really hard to comprehend what's going on, especially when the, the responsibility is laid at God's feet. The Lord afflicted, the, the text says, the Lord afflicted the child. And of course, we know that a lot of times that language refers to God's permissive will. The Lord allowed the child to be afflicted. Maybe that's a way to explain it. I submit to you, we don't fully understand all that's involved in the providence of God and why the innocent suffer. Job tried to get to the bottom of it, and the whole thing ended with God saying, where were you when all this happened? And basically telling Job, this is beyond you. This is beyond you. It's still troubling. And uh, we do have a glimmer of hope in verse 23. David's behavior is strange to his servants because... While the child was living, he was inconsolable. He wouldn't eat. And after the child died, he rose up, washed his face, got something to eat, started looking into the future, started going forward again. And they said, why are you doing this now that the child is dead? This seems to be backwards. And David says these words in verse 23. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? This is beyond my control. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So you can at least say this for David. He knew that he brought this on his house. He couldn't go back and undo the adultery and the murder that he committed. He couldn't go back and save his child's life. It was beyond him. But all he could do was put his hope in an afterlife in which he would see his child again. 
And uh, this is remarkable because this is long before much has ever been revealed about the afterlife. I mentioned Job. Uh, if you're doing the Bible reading along with the church, you've, you've been through the book of Job recently. And uh, Job talks about the afterlife, but it's all shadows and graves and everything is very uncertain about the afterlife. And that's because relatively few things have been revealed about the afterlife in the Old Testament. It's not until Christ comes that we start learning about the hope that Christians have in Christ after, after death. But David has, David's a prophet, and he has this hope of the future, and he knows the child is well. He knows that God is taking care of that child, and the child is safe. And so he's able to go forward, although with a broken heart. And so um, this is the beginning of the unfolding. Now you go back to the statement in verse 10, the sword will not depart from your house. A sword is an agent an instrument of warfare, right? Uh, rivalries, competitions, battles. And what we're going to see are battles surfacing from the family of David. And that's how we're going to organize the lesson. We're just going to, to show the rivals or the combatants in each episode as we move through the aftermath of David's sin with Bathsheba. So here's the first one. Two brothers, both sons of, uh, of David, of course, Absalom versus Amnon. Absalom versus Amnon. So in chapter 13, I'm going to summarize chapter 13. Uh, Amnon is David's oldest son, and he's attracted to his half-sister, his sister by a different mother. And there's no other way to put it, he rapes her. He violates her. This is the language of, of the text. Uh, literally, she says, you humiliated me. But he took advantage of her. And not only that, afterward, when she said, take me as your wife, in that culture, a woman treated that way. And if she was cast aside, she had nothing. She, would, she was doomed to destitution. So when she begged Amnon to take her in and take care of her, do, do at least that. Verse 15 said, He hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love, and I put love in air quotes, with which he had loved her. And he cast her out, and she was ruined. In that culture, a woman, after going through that, had very little hope. And uh, by the way, by all accounts, she was probably around 17 years old when this happened to her. Well, she happened to be the full sister of David's son, Absalom. They, they had the same father, David, of course, and the same mother. And Absalom took her in and assumed responsibility for her care. And uh, verse 20 says, she lived the rest of her days a desolate woman in her brother's house. The desolation probably is a reference to her not having a family, not having children, not having the status of a, a mother in Israel, which in that culture was, was very important to them. David did nothing. He was very passive. He did nothing. And it seemed like Absalom 
put the matter aside too. When Tamar, the woman, the, the sister who had been raped, when she started trying to voice her frustrations, Absalom told her to keep her peace and not take it to heart. So it looks like Amnon's going to get away with this. But secretly, Absalom hated Amnon for what he had done. Now, let's get a little bio here on Absalom. It's all pretty superficial, but we're going to skip over to chapter 14 just for a minute because there's a great description of him here in verses 25 and 26. Look at that. 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So he obviously had gotten out of the teen years. No acne. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. Well, maybe he is a teenager, one haircut a year. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. So this very handsome young man, and then there's this last little note in verse 27. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter. And look at her name, Tamar. That was the name of his sister that Amnon violated. So do you think Tamar is still on Absalom's mind? He named his only daughter after his sister. So he has not forgotten. He has not forgotten. Two years go by, and Absalom finds the opportunity he's been waiting for. There, it's the time to shear the sheep. And in that culture, sheep shearing was a, a festival. It was a chance for people to get together and get drunk and party. And uh, it was, could get kind of wild sometimes. And Absalom was counting on this as a, a place where he would have the opportunity to get revenge against his brother Amnon. And so he goes up to Ephraim where he knows Amnon will be at the sheep shearing festival. And he waits till Amnon gets drunk. And then he orders his servants to strike him down. And he's responsible for his brother's death. Amnon was probably the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, which is probably why he, David was letting him get away with things. It was a disgrace to the royal family. And um, Absalom had to flee. So he ran away to a place called Geshur, middle of nowhere really, northeast of Jerusalem. And he hid there for three years. And David's reaction to all of this is mixed. If you look at the end of chapter 13, verses 37 through 39, it says that Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. In other words, he mourned for Amnon day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. He was there three years, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So his heart longed for Amnon, whom he lost, but it also longed for Absalom. They both, after all, were his sons. If you're a parent, you may be able to understand that. Um, kids sometimes don't realize that even when they're at their worst, we still 
We can't help but love them. We can't turn that off. And so David, he, he grieves for both sons. Um, with each battle here, the first one being Amnon versus Absalom, we'll try to draw a practical application out. And I think the practical application here is that revenge doesn't pay. Uh, look where it got Absalom. He, he's a man with a family, three sons and a daughter. He has a, a wife. He has uh, Tamar, his sister, that he's caring for. But he's a fugitive in the land of Geshur for three years, uh, all because he wanted to get back at Amnon two years after the event happened. Amnon needed to pay. There needed to be justice but this is the wrong way to do it. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 that evil doesn't cancel out evil. Two rights don't make a wrong. Do not be overcome. Do not try to overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good, he says. And leave the vengeance to God. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Let's move on to the next uh, battle, if you want to put it that way. And here we see Absalom's involved again, but this time it's Absalom versus David. So three years go by in Geshur, and Joab, of all people, do you remember who Joab was? Captain of the army. Captain of David's army. Yes, yes, I, I believe so. And he had the two brothers, and one of them has been killed by the captain of Saul's army, Abner, but uh, Joab is uh, still over the army along with his brother Abishai. And uh, we'll see more about them later in the story. But Joab intervenes on Absalom's behalf. And uh, he convinces David to bring him home. So he brings him home, but for two years, David doesn't allow him in his presence. So we're now two years from the rape to the murder. Three years in Geshur. Two years not allowed in David's presence, seven years since Tamar's violation, seven years have gone by. And David finally allows Absalom back into the palace, into his fellowship, at his table. And uh, all things David's hoping are healed and, and fine. But Absalom, he's starting an underground grassroots campaign to be the next king and he's very clever about it and he's using those good looks to his advantage and so what he does is described in 2nd Samuel 15 beginning of verse 2 let's read that together Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate now the gate to the city was where all the business took place it's also where all the traffic was coming and going the most populated area of the city was at the gate. He found a place where there was a lot of traffic. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, judgments were often made in the gate, there would be two gates. There would be an outer wall and an inner wall. So you picture that creates a, kind of a courtyard area. And uh, between the two gates, that's where they would conduct judgment and other civil affairs. And so um, when somebody came to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? When he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. 
Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Now, this is kind of good timing for us. We're in 2024, an election year, and we're hearing all kinds of promises, right? It's easy when you're not in the office to tell people what you would do if you were president, or if you were the senator, or if you were the governor. And that's what Absalom's doing. He's promising the world, and, and he's doing it on a case-by-case basis. This one guy got cheated out of seven camels. Well, if I were king, you'd get your seven camels back. This next guy uh, lost his inheritance to his brother. Well, I would get your inheritance back, and then the brother comes by, and he'd probably tell him that he would help be on his side. He could tell them anything he wanted to because he wasn't in a position of accountability. Oh, if only I were, but I'm not. My father, who, and the implication is my father's not doing this for you. And David's at fault here because, like Moses, he didn't delegate and take care of this stuff. So you've got a population who's already aggravated about not having law and order and justice. And Absalom's very keen on that, and he's taking care of that. Um, Whenever the text says a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. Look at this last line in verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He knew how to get to their hearts. So he does this for four years. So now we're at 11 years since Tamar was violated. And the ball really started rolling in this direction. And he's ready to stage a coup. So he gets his father's permission to go to Hebron on the pretext of honoring a vow. Now, what do you remember about Hebron? Does anybody remember anything this early in David's story? We talked about Hebron a little bit. It's in Judah. That's where David was coronated king twice. Uh, the first time over Judah and the second time over all of Israel. There may be some symbolism going on here. Absalom goes to Hebron where kings are coronated because he's planning on being king and he's not waiting on his father to die to take the throne. So the conspiracy was strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing, says 2 Samuel 15 verse 12. And eventually Absalom grows so powerful that David has to leave Jerusalem. Can you imagine this? King David, his own son is running him out of Jerusalem and Absalom's not even there yet. He's in Hebron. But David figures out if he doesn't leave Jerusalem, he's going to get assassinated. And so he leaves barefoot and weeping as he climbs the Mount of Olives on his way out of Jerusalem. Can you just imagine what the hearts of the people feel? Those against David who've been swept away by Absalom are cheering. And those still loyal to David with a little more wisdom in their heads, knowing Absalom's in over his head grieving and knowing what's coming next. We're about to have a civil war. It's a very bad time for this country. What can we learn from this father-son rivalry? I think we can learn it's impossible to overestimate the influence of a parent. Your children are watching you. They're learning from your behavior. They're learning how you handle problems. This is not me saying that you have to be a perfect parent to have a good family. The problem with David wasn't his imperfections, although those, those were a problem. 
It was the cover-ups, the pride, the refusal to admit wrong, the um, passivity. You know, there are so many steps along the way. We've said this, we said this last week just in the episode with Bathsheba, but there's so many chances David had to get things right, to correct things. After Amnon did that, he should have stepped in and taken care of the situation. David would have handled that well. He'd been king for a long time. He, he's handled this stuff before. Yes, it was in his own family, but it was his responsibility, and he abdicated it to Absalom. And so Absalom, he said, if you're going to abdicate your family to me, how about your country? Parents, we have to do our job, or our children are going to suffer for it. And you're looking at these two boys. Amnon committed adultery, committed rape. Well... So did David. Uh, Absalom committed murder. Well, he's a chip off the old block, because so did David. And so we need to, we need to know that. Just even with our faith, especially with our faith, I, I saw this, these statistics, and I don't, from the source I got them, I don't think they're scientifically robust, if you want to put it that way, but it's a good illustration, and it says that if a child is the first person in a household to become a Christian, there's a 3.5% probability that everyone else in the household will become Christians. But if the mother is the first to become a Christian, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the household will follow along. And if the father is the first in the household to become a Christian, and these statistics are from a ways back, 93% probability. I think that would be much lower today with the exposure that young people have to conflicting ideas. But when homes were a little more insular, if the father became a Christian, it very good odds that the whole family would follow suit. So fathers, we have a, a job to do as spiritual leaders of our families. Uh, let's go to the next battle here. Ahithophel versus Hushai. I think I'm saying that right. I don't know. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't want me to make you read, right? Uh, Ahithophel versus Hushai. These, these are, you might look at these guys as cabinet members of David's administration. Uh, so Absalom, he manages to persuade this man Ahithophel to join his rebellion. And this was a very sly political move and very devastating blow to David because Ahithophel was considered to be a very wise counselor. If you're open to 2 Samuel 16, look at verse 23. In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. I don't take that to mean that his counsel was like the word of God, that he was a prophet, but that second part there tells me that's the way David looked at it, and that's the way Absalom looked at it. He was always trusted implicitly. He was used to saying things and everybody believing that he was right. Now, why is he joining up with Absalom if he's such a wise person? Well, if you put some verses together, you find out that he's the grandfather of Bathsheba. 
2 Samuel 11 verse 3 names Bathsheba's father. And then in 2 Samuel 23, 34, in this list of the mighty men of David, Bathsheba's father is connected to Ahithophel as his son. So it never says Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel, but you, you look at all the, the lists and the sons of and daughters of, and you get this information that this was Bathsheba's grandfather. Do you think maybe that had a part to play in his disloyalty to David? I, I, I think it's almost certain that this was what was going on. Not all of David's advisors left him, though. There were several friends that stuck by his side and were key in his comeback here. So there's some interesting ones here. Ittai the Gittite. Uh, where were Gittites from? What, um, what people are Gittites? They're not Israelites. Gittites were Philistines. Can you think of a famous Philistine? Goliath. David cut Goliath's head off. You know, so Ittai is uh, loyal to David. David even tells him, this isn't your battle. You shouldn't have to do this. You shouldn't risk your life. And look at 2 Samuel 15, 21. Ittai said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. It's like Ruth and Naomi here, you know. Wherever you go, I go. David had spent a lot of time with um, the Philistines in cities like Gath after his defeat of Goliath. So he had built relationships, as any wise king would, with the surrounding nations. And at this time, the people, the Gittites anyway, were, were on David's side, were allies. Uh, so Ittai is very important because, you know, David lost one of his commanders, Asahel, the guy that Abner killed, the brother of Joab. So now jo um, Ittai has taken Asahel's place. So it's Joab, um, I'm getting these names mixed up, Joab, Joab's brother, and Ittai. Next on the list are the priests. The priests stayed with David, which is telling they believed that God had anointed David and that they should stick with him. So you have Zadok and his son Ahimaaz and the other priest Abiathar and his son Jonathan. Which you wonder, you know, maybe was Jonathan named after Saul's son. These were the priests and their sons and they were urged to keep their positions in Jerusalem and protect David's interests. I'll, I'll talk about their role after I get to Hushai. Hushai wanted to stay with David as David fled and went away out of Jerusalem. But the king said, I need you to go to Jerusalem as a spy. I need you to work your way in just as Ahithophel has and be a counselor to Absalom. And what you learn, pass on to Zadok and Abiathar and their sons... Ahimeaz and Jonathan will be messengers. So they had this little secret system here where Hushai would spy on Absalom, pass the news on to David by way of the priests and their sons. And this is what they worked out. David prays in 2 Samuel 15, 31, 
O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And the way God would answer that prayer is through Hushai. Hushai, by the way, is the only man who's ever actually called the friend of David. And he's called the friend of David four times. Uh, three times in 2 Samuel and once in 1 Chronicles. So you think of the friend of David, the first thing people will say is Jonathan, and he absolutely was David's friend. I mean, their souls were knit. But he's never called that. David had a lot of friends. And um, I look forward to a class I hope we have time to do where we spend the whole class on David's mighty men and talk about some of these other soldiers that fought with David. There's some great stories near the end of 2 Samuel on that. Well, Hushai was one of these men. And he, uh, he was loyal to David, and he served in this role. And God used him to persuade Absalom not to follow Ahithophel's advice. So what happened was, this is in 2 Samuel 17, Absalom learns where David's hiding out. And so he gets his advisors together, Ahithophel on one side, Hushai on the other side. And he says, should I go and take him? And I kind of break the advice down into these two categories. Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, the one whose counsel is always considered equal to the word of God, he wants to do special ops, and he wants to do it right now. He said, let me take 12 men down and we'll kill him. He's just one man. What can he do? Now, that actually was the right advice. That would have worked. Because David was in no shape at that moment to take that kind of special ops um, procedure on. He, he, would have, he would have died in that. But Hushai came back and he said, no. And he made a lot of arguments I won't, I won't get into. But he said, what you need is a, a large fighting force. You need to go from Dan to Judah, from the north to the south and gather all of Israel around you to take David, because you've outnumbered him, but you know his mighty men. You know David's men can fight, and you're going to need four men to every one of theirs. And Absalom listened to Hushai. Now, it said, look at verse 14, you might see why. Absalom said to the men of, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained, and that literally means commanded, to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The language there is like God commanded the counsel to deceive Absalom. He commanded Ahithophel's counsel not to work, and Hushai's bad advice to work. And so Absalom says, okay, I'm, going for, I'm opting for the large army, which took a long time to get together and gave David time to regroup and get his battle plans ready. And it saved David's life. When Ahithophel saw that this was the way things were going, he went home, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. Verse 23. So you see the pride of this man, his dejection, his need for revenge, eventually was his undoing. What can we learn from this battle between Absalom and David? 
I think the bright spot here is that true friends are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. You've got these friends of David that will go the extra mile for him. Let's get to these last two. The battle, and these guys were on the same side really, but there's a foot race here at the end of this story that's really interesting. Ahimeaz, which we'll recall was the son of Zadok the priest, and an unnamed Cushite servant or slave. Uh, so thanks to Hushai, David had enough time to escape. He goes to Mahanaim, uh, the old capital of Ishbosheth. If you remember the story of Saul's son Ishbosheth, the fourth son that tried to be the heir apparent but was assassinated. David runs to that area and regroups. And Absalom had a large army, but David still had thousands in his servants, service. We're now in 2 Samuel 18. Uh, he divides them into thirds, and as I said, it's Joab, Joab's brother Abishai, and this uh, Gittite, this Philistine named Ittai. And David decided to stay behind, but it's not like when he stayed behind and sinned with Bathsheba, because this time the troops are begging him not to go out. Verse 3 of 2 Samuel 18, You shall not go out. If we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. So it's better that you stay to help from the city. They needed his leadership more than they needed his sword. So they had him stay behind. He had one request in verse 5. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So the battle wages on. They come into the forest of Ephraim. The casualties are high. 20,000 men fall in the forest. It doesn't say where the casualties fell. We assume more of Absalom's men fell than David's men. It actually says that the forest took more men than the sword. I don't know if there's some supernatural thing alluded to there or something else, but it's just an interesting comment made in verses 6 through 8. Absalom famously was fleeing on his mule, and his head gets caught in the branches of a tree. And we usually think of this as it's depicted in this fresco of his hair because that long flowing hair getting caught in the tree, but literally it says that his head got caught, and it probably was his hair. I mean, that's why so much attention was brought to it, which, parents, you can use this with your sons. You know, this is a dangerous thing. Get a haircut, you could wind up like Absalom. A cautionary tale here, but he's hung in the tree. He's helpless. He can't do anything. Joab, David's army commander, just happens to come upon him, and he throws... I think three javelins through his heart and kills him dead. Now here's the problem. How do we tell David? Because what did David say? He had a request. Deal gently for my sake, for me, with my son Absalom. And Joab knows how, uh, how David is about these children. So Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok the priest, he's a messenger, swift of foot. He says, I want to tell David about the successful battle. I want to tell him the war is over, he can go back home. And Joab says, I don't think that's a very good idea. He's trying to protect him from the outrage. He's close to this young man. So he sends a Cushite servant ahead. And these guys are runners, long-distance runners. And they're made for delivering messages to kings. They didn't have the internet, you see. They had to do this. So the Cushite's running, but Ahimeaz, he decides to go anyway, and he's faster. And he outruns the Cushite, and David looks and he sees Ahimeaz from afar. And they must have had this system where 
certain men brought good messages and certain men brought bad messages. So the king would know just by looking if it was good news or bad news. He sees Ahimeaz and he says, he's a good man, he brings good news. When he comes, it gets a little awkward. So let's look at the conversation here. Chapter 18, verse 28. Ahimeaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Now, there are a lot of questions he could ask here. That's the first thing he wants to know. Now, Ahimeaz probably realizes why Joab didn't want to send him. Ahimeaz said, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. It's like my friend who shot a dog one time because it was attacking his wife. And when the dog's owner came and said, Have you seen my dog? He said, Last time I saw it, it was going up that way. Um, he knew he'd killed it, but he didn't give all the information. That's what Ahimeaz is doing. He doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news. But the Cushite arrives, and he asks the Cushite, and uh, this is verse 31, Good news for the Lord my king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said, Is it well with Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. That's all he had to say. David then mourned and grieved, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so it's a sad story. Even There's no way this could have ended well, right? This was the best possible ending for David, and it ended in heartbreak and grief. The scars he carried were heavy for him to bear. And so this is a story that's told, and it's meant to be a deterrent to us, and to know how devastating sin can be, not just on us, but the people around us, our families, those with whom we have influence. It literally destroyed David's family. And so his final years, as we'll see in the lessons that follow, will have a few isolated successes here and there, but they will always be covered by the shadow of the mistakes he had made in his family, of his um, polygamy, of his adultery, the murderous actions he took, of his passivity with his children. He would pay a, a heavy price for those things. But still David trusted in the Lord. And I remind you of his words in Psalm 34, O oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. He always knew that God was on his side, and he didn't forget his heart. It's like I said last week, the difference between David and other people who made big mistakes, and what a lot of people don't realize when they compare themselves to David is, David kept, a, his heart was like God's because... He corrected his steps, and he confessed his sin, and he humbled himself. And it's that sense in which he was like a man after God's own heart, not the sins that he committed, but his willingness to say the same thing about sin that God says about sin, that it's awful, that we should stay away from it, that you pay a heavy price for committing it. 
All right, thank you for your attention. Look forward to getting into what comes next in David's life next Wednesday.